Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. The Drinking Hour on Food FM. You're listening to The Drinking Hour with David Kermode in association with the International Wine and Spirit Competition, using the best in the world to judge the best in the world. Hello and welcome to The Drinking Hour here on Food FM with me, David Kermode. In today's programme, South Africa, surely one of the natural wonders of the world with wines to match. It's a country we all need to support right now. We'll find out why and we'll talk about what we should all be drinking with Greg Sherwood, a master of wine and a maestro when it comes to that wonderful country's wines. And the highs and the headaches of being a buyer. We'll have our monthly glimpse into that life with the ever-ebullient Freddie Bulmer of the Wine Society. Uh, This week, the wonders of Austria and the woes of the shipping crisis. The Drinking Hour on Food FM. South Africa. It's difficult to think of somewhere so blessed by both climate and spectacular scenery. So often breathtakingly beautiful, it also has some very evident social challenges that can take your breath away too. The wines are almost impossible to pigeonhole, such is that climate that seemingly almost anything is possible. But over the past few years, making and selling wine has been incredibly difficult. From severe drought a few years back to government-imposed restrictions on drinking that still threaten the industry's future. Greg Sherwood, a master of wine, is a South African wine expert as well. Born in Pretoria, the son of a diplomat, he spent his formative years travelling the world, developing a taste for fine food and wine. And he's now fine wine buyer at Hanford Wines in London and also a leading judge, including at the IWSC, sponsors of this programme. Greg, welcome to The Drinking Hour. No, pleasure to be with you. You were at one stage earlier in your career a commodities trader. So tell us how you ended up in wine. Well, I I was working um, with international investment and trade shows, and that led to a move from Cape Town. I was actually working in Washington, D.C. for a a year and a bit, moved back to South Africa, took up another position in Cape Town. And um, while I was doing that, an opportunity, which sounded too good to be true, in Johannesburg, came up as trading polyethylenes and petrochemicals uh, when the oil price was about $24. So a little bit downstream, I wasn't trading oil per se, but um, just slightly downstream. Um, Interesting uh, career, interesting job, uh, quite stressful. Um, Between, you know, everything's on spot prices, this and that, and trying to get contracts signed with big tenders and for big big corporates and very stressful. And I think just while I was doing that, um, I was introduced to a few people um, who were in the Cape Wine Academy. And um, they encouraged me to start going to some tastings and things, which I did. I did enjoy wine. My, obviously, I'd grown up around wine. But I, I had no academic um, inclination around wine. But um, it seemed like a good escape after a long day of kind of work um, to just take your mind off kind of... Um, yeah, the stresses of, of the day, you know, going to gym wasn't quite enough. It's actually quite nice to just do something that's not so strenuous to to get rid of the stress and the uh, uh, of the day. So, yeah, started wine tasting. That led to me enrolling in the what would be the preliminary of the Cape Wine Academy, which is a bit like W set now. It's a commencement of basically a three year diploma degree. Um, and then it kind of carried on from there. And uh, after each year, I kind of you can stop, but I carried on to the next and the next and the next. And my friendship group of, amongst wine professionals grew very quickly. Um, and then, then the next thing you know, kind of uh, three years down the road, I had finished my diploma and I thought, well, I think there's maybe more fun to trade fine wine than to trade commodities. Um, so I made, yeah, so I kind of uh, 
threw in the towel, um, went to go and be a best man at a friend's wedding down in the Eastern Cape, um, and then came back, returned back to the UK in early 2000. Uh, cool Britannia, things can only get better, Blair and Spice Girls and lastminute.com floats being 200% oversubscribed. You know, it was real kind of uh, dot-com bubble kind of era and um, a lot of positivity around. And that also translated into the wine industry. And uh, I think there was a, if I remember correctly, I mean, the MW was still almost, you know, impossible to get into. Uh, Diplo, WSET was certainly ha- angling on really kind of thinking about how they were going to move closer to bridging the gap between the MW, certainly in the UK, um, around about then. And um, But the, the, the trade was short of kind of really kind of skilled people who had a good business background, but also had a good founding, uh, founding knowledge in wine. Uh, a lot of people in the wine trade kind of fall into it from university or working at Oddbins or Majestic or with a degree in English and this and that. But, you know, I had a very good kind of commercial background, which has stood me in good stead uh, over the years. So that's uh, kind of how I fell into it. And um, I've always had the passion for history, geography, travel, um, you know, and I love the social side of wine, meeting people, buying wine, selling wine. So it's all just kind of the perfect kind of storm coming together and uh, the perfect job for me. So unfortunately, I didn't kind of quite realize this straight out of university, but um, these things come to you eventually, I think. Well, it was a mix of serendipity and your skill set kind of combining along with your passion for wine too. So that, that all makes sense. I mentioned that the wines of South Africa are very difficult to pigeonhole. Do you think that's a fair comment? Yeah, absolutely. Um, sometimes people could see that as possibly a negative, depending if you know if it was another country and regions. Um, but I think one of South Africa's great strengths over the years has been its diversity and its almost kind of chameleon-like character within the trade. Uh, its strength of white and red wines. Not many, you know a lot of countries are much stronger on red or much stronger on whites. You know, it's probably only really kind of. France that is just, you know, has incredible diversity of, of, of all styles. Um, but we obviously always have looked up to France as a kind of, you know, the, the leader and, and, and take a lot of lessons from their industries and regions. Um, but, you know, we've, we've, we've embraced regionality a long time ago. I mean, you'll remember Australia, I always mentioned, moved away from kind of brand Australia to brand regionality, and it got shot down within a a very short period of time with the person running wines of Australia losing their job. Um, their head was given to the big corporates and they reverted back to kind of varietal brand kind of country marketing, which set back Australia for 10 years. We continued with real intricate regionality and expressing styles. And that's, um, we made the USP of South Africa, our diversity. And of course, you know, nothing will succeed unless you have quality across those ranges and styles. So um, I think that diversity and that difficulty in kind of, you know, pigeonholing us is, is a real strength. Yeah, I would agree with that. Absolutely. Uh, I, you mentioned your love of history. And uh, we tend to refer to countries like South Africa as New World, uh, somewhat laughably. Um, it's a proper misnomer when it comes to South Africa, isn't it? Well, you know, it is, you know, it's such a kind of hackney cliche. Um, but, you know, we've just sold a, a bottle of 1821 Grand Constance at auction a week or two ago for almost a million rand. So that's divide that by 20, you know, still quite a lot of pounds. Um, one of the high, I think it's the highest auction price for a single bottle. Um, 1821 sweet wine, you know, Constance has been making wine, you know, the, the cliche of when Bordeaux was still a swamp, you know, I, I love to roll that one out. Because, um, uh, you know, I, I, I studied at American University in, in the States and in Holland, business and economics. Um, and, you know, the Dutch went to Bordeaux. You see all those lovely little canals. I lived in Holland for five years. Um, you see all those lovely canals in the Gironde kind of draining the fields. And only when, you know, you after on Primeau, when they had massive rains and you're driving past these flooded, boggy fields do you realize you know that in the 18 you know 200 years ago that there was no hope in hell of growing these uh, quality grapes there unless they sorted out um, you know the kind of the, the, the canal systems and drainage there but of course you know now Bordeaux is, is, is the 
greatest uh, terroir in the world for you know red wines and um, um, but it is interesting to think back that you know Jan van Riebeek planted Grundreif uh, probably Semillon in uh, in the 1650s late 1650s so um, there's a lot of history and um, while it it might be a bit spurious to kind of refer to that with a direct link to our styles and quality it, it it's a it's a kind of psychological and uh, um, uh, confidence that is there that you can always fall back on when people maybe ridicule your wines or your industry you know we're not Johnny come lately's you know we've, we've been doing this for a while but you know we're finally finding our feet and you know we haven't we haven't had 700 years like Burgundy, but hopefully, you know, another 100 years, we will still all be, South Africa will be making some incredible wines. I'm sure that's true. It's more recent history includes the apartheid era, of course, and the inequalities inflicted and the likes of international sanctions in response. How did all that impact the wine industry there? The sanctions and the disinvestment and isolation, you know, was a necessary um uh, step to take to kind of you know m move the political process um, it had a massive effect certainly we were the industry was caught in a kind of time warp um, there was no real travel and exchange of ideas and as you know in viticulture and winemaking it's it's kind of you know it's crucial especially with the kind of diversity that we have of grapes and styles and regions in South Africa so that really kind of set the whole industry back and we were kind of stuck 20 30 years in kind of stasis and um um but you know the 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 social side of it you know i think once the politics started to move in the right direction there was also acknowledgement that certain changes need to come in kind of welfare and uh, uh, law pra uh, working practices for workers and uh, um, farm workers and, and property rights and things like that and um which it comes to kind of back to, you know, just the current, you know, situation where uh, it, it's very difficult. But I think a lot of the, 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 the kind of isolation, you know, did set our industry back. But we knew once we got back of post-90, 94 kind of era that we had a lot of catching up to do. And um, the South African, white, you know, industry was up to the task and people traveled incredibly quickly and broadly. And... Um, Fortunately, we, we got up to speed. But um, I suppose there is still issues of kind of a slightly unhealthy relationship in the general population with alcohol generally, not necessarily wine per se, but uh, which is probably something that has needs addressing. But obviously, of course, wine and uh, the higher brow end of it gets affected when, um, when any kind of policies are taken by government. Yeah, and more recently, the wine industry has been rather hammered by... Uh, a series of disasters, you know, severe droughts, water shortages, and then this ban on alcohol sales, which, as you mentioned, you know, might, might have been a necessary measure, but rather uh, unfairly impacted wine. Um, what uh, have you witnessed in terms of impact? I mean, it's been, obviously, the pandemic has, has killed tourism, you know, with a hammer blow, but that's been the case in many countries around the world. And, uh, you know, there's a lot of, for the wine industry in South Africa, there's a lot of producers who have been really kind of home market centric and focused on making good wines that are well known and well received within the home market and are on almost every wine list in every restaurant. And, you know, when you kind of shut off travel and tourism and and then even kind of going out for local, you know, and, you know, there's curfews still, you know, it really kind of to hammer blow for a lot of producers who are not kind of, just kind of allocating and sending their wine to the UK or the US or to Japan, you know. So it, that's led to a lot of businesses coming under wine business, a lot of stress. It's led to a lot of restaurant on-trade closures, um, massive um, loss of employment for a lot of farm workers. There's been kind of steps trying to take into mitigate, so, you know, that workers aren't necessarily, they're not kicked off farms and that because they are some workers rights and things but still you know if you if you're sitting at home and you've got no job and you can't feed your family it's it's really tricky and if the person who employs you is literally in debt and going to the wall it, it, it's very difficult for everyone to see light um but you know people have soldiered on and the, the great problem is 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 all kind of last remnants of profitability are being ripped out of the industry and and that 
totally removes any possibility of, of, of investment for the future and, and who knows what um, problems that will you know, store up for uh, the industry going ahead. But it, it's been very difficult. You know, I, I'm fortunate that I work more in the fine wine end of the trade. So the people I work with, the growers, while logistically it's been difficult to get their wines to port and to get containers and to export um, with global shortages of just a general logistics nightmare, um, you know, they are still making great wine and selling all the, most of their wines and um, kind of carrying on. But there is a massive segment of the industry, more mass market, main market, that um, are certainly kind of buckling under the pressures. And I think that won't go away until we really get back to normal and see a kind of real flow of, you know, tourism back into the country and uh, international travel. We can help, of course by um, traveling to South Africa again when that's possible. But in the meantime, we can buy plenty of South African wine. What should we be looking for? You know, I, I just, when I came to the UK in 2000, you know, it was, the, you know, that it was like a kid in a sweet shop, you know. I, I, hard, I was still buying a lot of South African wine for the business, but I, I hardly ever drank the stuff just because, you know, I was tra traveling to Bordeaux and Burgundy and the Rhone and Italy and all over Europe. And, you know, it's just, I was playing catch up and just kind of immersing myself in all these international wines. But if I look at 20 years ago and I look at now, I mean, probably every other bottle I drink now is South African, a, a bottle of Chenin or a bottle of Cabernet or a Bordeaux blend. Um, but I think certainly from the, the entry level end for, for the mass market and for kind of supermarkets, I think there has been a lot of rationalization over the years. And, and the products that are there are certainly very high quality. Um, you won't find much better wines, you know, if you're going to Waitrose or something. I mean, just incredible wines. Some own labels, some made specifically for them. But even even in the kind of bigger Tesco, Sainsbury's, you know, there's a there's a real focus on quality, and the buyers there know that if they do their work, there's some real quality to be found. You know, of course, you can't mention South African wine without mentioning the versatility and the lovely Chenin Blancs that, you know, can span all price points. But um, you know, Sauvignon Blanc, a great category. Um, all our kind of lush reds from lighter styles of Cinso, you know, we can get some great value still in the, in, uh, in the high street, all the way up to the kind of old vine kind of icons. I think the fine wine end of things, you know, is, is t chugging along very nicely, thank you. But um, I think if people haven't really experimented and explored in the more kind of value end and middle end of, uh, of the high street um, is certainly worthwhile and uh, uh, they're unlikely to be disappointed. Wow, yeah, I'd agree with that, and especially with that Sanso you mentioned, which can be sensational. But um, tell us a bit about the climate conditions and how they impact the key regions and their wines. Yeah, I mean, I was um, chatting to somebody the other day about Sauvignon Blanc specifically, and uh, I know we'll, we'll get onto it maybe later, but it just, you know, just how certain varieties just seem to excel so well in South Africa, which is effectively a hot country. Um, but we do have regionality. We do have vintage variation, which is a good thing. We do have um, a lot of kind of varying microclimates. Um, but while, it, you know, the, a lot of the regions may be warm, we do still have quite, you know, interesting diurnal shifts, you know, between highs and the lows of of nighttime and early morning and, and, and midday kind of thing. And if you take somewhere like Robertson, you know, where it's, there's some lovely limestone soils, there's a lot of great uh, Cap Classique sparkling wines coming out of there. And you think, well, why would, you know, isn't that quite a hot area? Um, but they've got lovely kind of limestone chalky soils and they've got massive diurnal shift. You know, the, they may get, you know, 30s and, but, you know, I think if you look at, you know, the mean temperatures, you know, they'll probably sit, you know, in the early 20s, which is just kind of ideal. So you're retaining lovely freshness overnight. Um, you do have, of course, some proper old school kind of cool climate regions like Algon, um, like Constantia. Um, but, you know, it's, it's, it's only when you kind of, the problem is, is when you get drought and heat. Uh, one or the other is always a problem, but when you get both, it, it, it can be a bit of a killer. So, and heat spikes and things like that. But I think um, we've, we've learned to adapt and uh, there's a lot of, um, a lot of regionality and we, we're, we're matching uh, the styles and, and uh, varieties for those regions to make the best quality. 
You talked about uh, temperature there and uh, its most famous white variety, Chenin Blanc, um, we also associate with the Loire, which obviously is cooler. Um, so tell us what defines the South African style of Chenin. Uh, you know, what's becoming more apparent over the last few years is, is um, you know, because obviously a lot of Chenin was kind of mass blends of styles and regions, even Western WO, West, wine of origin, Western Cape or coastal. But I think what we're seeing now with all these kind of, maybe on the more kind of you know, premium end is single site expressions, which give a real insight into the styles and the terroirs and the regionality of kind of micro sites, which then are expressed through um, through great wines, you know, certainly Chenin Blanc's a classic example. So I, I love to kind of look at the very unusual, cool styles of Chenin, not many growers, say like from Algon, there's not much that much Chenin, there's a handful of growers, versus the kind of more bruised yellow orchard fruit kind of style of Chenin from old vines in the Swatland, a warm area, but... Um, lovely kind of schist and granitic soils, um, to then, you know, incredible Stellenbosch um, um, styles, which, again, will always be influenced by the kind of coastal uh, dynamic and maritime influence. And um, you just get such a variation of styles. And I think um, even the bigger producers have, have kind of decided that they actually do want to have some of that regionality reflected in the wines and not just blended all the way, which could easily be done. Um, and while the, the end product may not be any worse or any better, but when you do actually taste a, a certain terroir or a certain region style, it, it is quite um, refreshing and across price points as well, which is, which is great. There's a major shortage of Marlborough Sauvignon Blanc at the moment, and um, South Africa is stepping up to fill the gap. Do you think consumers who love the Marlborough style, which is very distinctive, are going to find what they're looking for in South Africa? Absolutely. I mean, we've it is it is a kind of variety and a, a kind of concept that has confounded the wine trade certainly overseas for so many years. I was just on a phone call this, this morning with Duncan Savage, who, who's kind of one of the masters of Sauvignon Blanc and Semillon, and. Um, the thing about Sauvignon is that if you want to make those kind of more tropical thial, uh styles in the kind of um, New Zealand kind of category, it, it's quite easy to do. And, and if you think about how do you do that, how does South Africa make such a variety of styles being a hot country? We're not this kind of cool, clouded, you know, New Zealand island. Um, and I can tell you, we, I was chatting to somebody the other day, it, it's, you know, the importance of that coastal cooling influence, whether you five miles, eight miles, or even 15, 20 miles inland, the diurnal shift of temperature coming in from that kind of the temperature off the cold uh, um, Atlantic um, is, is just incredibly important. And it does really travel inland. And each kind of meter of altitude you go, you know, you'll get a corresponding drop in temperature. And if you position your vineyards correctly for Sauvignon Blanc, you can really make almost any style you want from a Loire style, a grassy style, a gooseberries, you know, cat pee on a gooseberry bush, uh, French style, you know, and all the way up to this kind of Marlborough style and, and it can be done affordably. And that, that's just people have taste these ver variety of styles and say, wow, you know, that is just incredible. And of course you get people then other styles who want to make much more serious um, expressions. But um, I think I would rather buy a really good, uh, call it a Marlborough style from South Africa for a good price, and then kind of buy a really poor expression that's been bulk shipped and uh, it's just like kind of dregs of what there was available from uh, from Marlborough. So um, we've, we've got a lot of jokers up our mm. sleeve, <laughs> just put it that way. For sure. We should talk red as well, because um, the signature uh, variety uh, of South Africa is Pinotage, and it's quite a Marmite grape variety. It tends to inspire great uh, enthusiasm from some and a lot less from others. Um, why do you think that is? Um, I mean, I think Pinotage, people have tried to, you know, pin Shannon as the white and Pinotage as the red. Um, I think we're kind of maybe moving a little bit away from that concept 
as regionality has diluted that thought process a bit, um, you know, it's it's not like there's one grape that's great for the whole country. Um, regionality now has surpassed that that kind of thinking, and you've got your Chardonnays and Sauvignons and Pinot Noirs in Elgin. You've got your Syrahs and Shannons and and kind of Mediterranean varieties up the Swatland. Yeah, and then Cab- you know Cabernet is king in Stellenbosch, and you know, um, so uh, Pinot Noir, and Chardonnay up the Walk, you know, Walker Himlinard, Walker Bay. So Pinotage, you know, it'll be grown all over the place, and all these different regions will yield different styles from a light kind of parentage of Pinot Noir and Cinso style to the more kind of heavier, richer coffee mocha, you know, ex- you know, espresso coffee pinotage style so it's but i think ultimately you know i judged the absa top 10 pinotage competition finally and i think in 2019 for the first time and um, it was amazing to see the styles um, but what stood out for pinotage was that they were all delicious as long as they were mel- uh, well-made wines and that's true for you know for all varieties i don't think we're pinning our our hat on pinotage certainly not in the in the fine wine trade, I think we each region's got its flagship variety, um, and each region's kind of um, showboating their best. And uh, amongst that, you will get some very interesting varieties like Semillon coming out of France. Check in that you've got your Cabernet Franc from um, from Stellenbosch, Pal. Um, but yeah, we've just got so much diversity. So I think um, there is a large swathe of consumers who will enjoy the that lovely lush black fruit and brambly fruit of, of a good affordable pinotage but likewise there's some serious uh, ones out there from Kalankop and Arbery Bierslar's own Bierslar label um, so a lot to explore so if you like it you know I, I'm, I'm never going to knock it so it is a bit of a Marmite wine but but um, all the more for diversity and uh, you know keep more people happy. You mentioned the Bordeaux blends and you're in the fine wine world. How do you kind of characterize those uh, blends? Yeah, I mean, look, where we're Pinotage has not really had any, you know, we've not had a Pinotage from Burgundy say, well, we've got the Romany County of Pinotage. This is what we can aspire to be like. You know, we Pinotage is kind of this indigenous style that just, you know, we've had to kind of you know, um, negotiate ourselves. But when you come to kind of Cabernet and, and what we like to call now Cape Bordeaux blends, um, driven by Cabernet Sauvignon primarily, Merlot, Cab Franc, Petit Vido, and even Malbec, um, there's such uh, incredible potential with quality, stylistic, you know, we get the ripeness, but with freshness, but with minerality and, and certain restraint. Um, and most importantly, like I always say, you can't make any of these wines to appeal to fine wine consumers if they don't have ageability. And that's one thing we have in buckets. You know, you can pull these old bottles from the 70s, 60s, uh, 80s, 90s. And if, if they're well made to start with, you know, they're going to and well stored, they're just going to be phenomenal. And, and then obviously get a bit more oldie, oldie worldy as they kind of mature. And um, um, they can certainly give you know, the top wines of Bordeaux run for their money and many blind tastings have shown that. So it's um, it's an easy card to play to fine wine consumers who, you know, Pinot Noir is getting there, but it's a, it's a, it's more of a, a struggle and a journey still. But certainly for Cabernet and Cabernet blends, you know, Napa knew that, you know, you've got to have these top wines to compete. And uh, I think the Cape's doing incredibly well. And uh, we've, uh, obviously, we won't forget Syrah. I always told, warned that I'm, I, I, I can have long conversation and then not mention Syrah. But of course, outside of Cote Rote and Hermitage, uh, we certainly make the best Syrah in the world. Aussies will disagree, but you know, I think we have more diversity of styles, of fine wine styles of Syrah. So, but certainly for me, it's probably the most exciting category, Cape Bordeaux blends. And you, as I mentioned in the introduction, are a leading wine judge uh, around the world, actually, um, and at uh, the IWSC, which sponsors this programme. Tell us how you go about judging a wine. Look, I think the, you know, like any blind tasting is, it all come, it'll come down to the quality and, and you, you know, you might know the category, obviously, you're judging, you might know the re- certain region, the variety or, or the type of blends, um, even you might even know price points. But, you know, 
I always believe you've got to be totally, you know, honest in yourself. And if a wine is good, it's good. If it's not great, you know, uh, you, you're doing a disservice to whoever the producer is if, if you kind of give it kind of faux uh, kind of points and elevate it beyond its its position. But I think, you know, South African wine has just has achieved so much in, in, the, in the last 10 years, um, quality-wise, that it's, it's just judging it uh, whether it's... Um, any of these international competitions or top 100 in South Africa, um, IWSC, um, the quality is there. And even from on kind of across the spectrum, it just makes judging the wine so easy. So you don't have to sit there and kind of worry about, like in the old days, if it was green or if they're pyrazines or if it's got burnt rubber or this or whatever. You know, it, you're purely looking at the quality, the balance, the finesse, you know, how good is it, and you know, really honing in on that, and and I think it, it makes it much easier to judge the wines, much easier to focus in on more important factors of balance and kind of finesse, and and really kind of identify those in the in the wines and and make sure you reward them. So, um, uh, it's 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 a great category to judge. I, you know, I've got a lot of friends who do a lot of judging, and it's not quite as easy when you coming up against walls of uh, wines from, you know, I won't mention any other countries, but um, it, it's not as easy. I find, I find it quite an easy job these days. Uh, I would agree with that, yeah. <laughs> Do you have a desert island wine? It's a difficult one. I mean, on my reds, it would probably have to be a nice uh, Cape Bordeaux blend with a bit of age that is just in a kind of, in the, twi- you know, the kind of peak of its uh, maturity after maybe 15, 20 years from a great vintage that you can just sit there and contemplate. And uh, probably on the whites, um, probably an old vine, Chenin Blanc, probably from uh, maybe up the Skirfberg, up the, up the West Coast or somewhere maritime up there, or even something uh, grown on granitic decomposed granite soils, which just gives you that searing acidity and kind of stony minerality and just a yet in the glass you know with these kind of old vine concentration just unfurls layer after layer from wet straw to kind of tangerine to then peach to kind of white citrus and you know each time you stick your nose in the glass um there's a new kind of uh, dimension and that that's just you know something you don't really get on many wines other, unless you're spending hundreds of pounds on maybe the greatest Grand Cruise of, of Burgundy, white Burgundy. But um, yeah, certainly I'd say I went a nice uh, Cape Bordeaux blend and, and, and certainly a Shannon, old vine Shannon from a, uh, one of the top producers. Maybe a Ian Ordeer or a bit of Sardi, uh, David and Nadia or Ibn Sardi um, or the Mullinos. I mean, just such incredible, it's such uh, so many to choose from. Well, as ever, you make the wines sound uh, incredibly uh, tempting. So uh, I think we'll join you on the desert island. Uh, thanks ever so much for talking to us on The Drinking Hour, Greg. Great. Thank you very much. Great being with you. In a moment, we'll have the first of our recommendations from the IWSC Hall of Fame. But first, here's news of another Food FM programme you might love. Thank you, David. I'm Jenny Linford from Food FM, and I'm exploring the world of cheese from brie to parmesan and everything in between. So after enjoying the drinking hour, why not listen to my series, A Slice of Cheese? You can find it on your podcast platform and foodfmradio.com. Now back to David and the drinking hour. The drinking hour on Food FM. You're listening to the drinking hour with David Kermode in association with the International Wine and Spirit Competition, using the best in the world to judge the best in the world. Okay, it's time for the first trio of medal winners from the IWSC Hall of Fame. And these are from the Northern Hemisphere 2021, as the Southern Hemisphere judging is yet to happen. That's due shortly in early October, as Greg and I were discussing. We'll be sure to let you know some South African medal winners when we have those. First, here's a gold medal winner from Croatia, 1903 Malvasica Istarska, 2018 from Ravalico, a white grape grown on the Istra Peninsula. It's the second most planted grape in the country after Grasivina. And the producer Ravalico is based in a little town called Nova Vas on the river Mirna. Uh, the judges said of this perfumed, complex and powerful wine that starts with citrus and honeyed aromas, intense peach, pear and tangerine mingle with lavender and thyme on the creamy and beautifully balanced palate. 
lovely almond with a savoury and mineral finish. Next, it's a classic from Puglia down in the south of Italy in its heel. Uh, this one is a silver medal winner, Pazzia 2019 Primitiva de Mandolia from Terra di Salva, which was started in 2008 with a precise purpose to protect and give continuity to the local traditions, taking care of Salva's surrounding vineyards to produce high quality wine with a dedication to Primitivo, that grape variety. The judges said a rich, opulent wine with great intensity and depth, ripe berry fruits leading to concentrated, finite tannins, juicy acidity and smoky undertones and a rewarding plump finish. And that wine is available at Waitrose and Partners if you want to find it. And here's another gold to round things off. This time a sweet treat from California. Essencia Orange Muscat 2019 from Quadi Winery in Madeira County. Uh, the grape is known in Italy as Moscato Fior de Rancio. And the orange muscat grapes are harvested at 22 bricks. Uh, that's the measurement of sugar level. They're crushed, chilled and allowed to macerate. Uh, wine spirits are added to arrest the fermentation very briefly. Uh, the judges said nectar-like qualities of syrupy apricot and peach. A crescendo of tiny, perfect elements. Beeswax, orange zest, marmalade rind dry golden raisins, caramelised sugar and hazelnut all bring together this vibrant wine. It has memorable and lasting integrity. And it sounds amazing, doesn't it? That's available at Majestic Wine. The Drinking Hour on Food FM. Right, it's time for our monthly glimpse into the life of a wine buyer, the highs and the headaches as well, with Freddie Bulmer at the Wine Society. He buys Australia, New Zealand, Eastern Europe, and uh, a particular passion for him, Austria, which is where we're going to start this week uh, with the uh, highs for Freddie. Hello, Freddie. <laughs> Hello, David. How are you doing? I'm all right. I'm fine. Thank you very much. All the better for a recent trip to Austria, which is a place I, I love to travel to and I love the wines. And I know that it's a very passionately, almost jealously guarded part of your portfolio. <laughs> Why are you so passionate about Austria? Oh, I just, you know, I think it's because there's just so much that's still to be discovered there. You know, certainly from the point of view of the UK wine drinker, it was also one of the first buying regions that I took on when I started buying. And I guess from the beginning, there was always this kind of personal love affair with Austria, I suppose. You know, I was at a point where I was getting into buying wines and, and I was given Austria to explore. Um, and, and it just excited me from the word go, really, because there was so much to explore. And I've been doing it for quite a few years now. And, uh, and, and, and you know, still, it's just the tip of the iceberg, I think. So it's fascinating. As a buyer uh, in a big organisation uh, like the Wine Society, or I mean, it's not huge, but it's it's reasonably big in terms <laughs> of uh, there are how many buyers are there seven or eight of you? Is eight, that right? Eight now, yeah, eight. yeah, yeah. Mm. Uh, so that that's um, you know that's a, a reasonable handful of buyers, I would say. Um, <laughs> and you tend to move around a little bit, don't you? For example, I know uh, I remember when I first met you, you were buying England. Uh, you've done. Uh, Hungary in the past, I know, and I think yeah, Greece yeah. as well. So um, <laughs> I'm keeping up. Uh, so uh, why uh, why is it that you're so keen to kind of hang on to Austria? Because I know you are. Yeah, do you know it's it's hard to not fall in love with the places that you buy, and I guess with the with some of the countries that you just mentioned, like England and Hungary and so on, they were great for kind of cutting my teeth as a buyer, I suppose, because there there's plenty of stuff to be kind of um, to be tasting, trying, exploring, so on. But they're not so big that if you mess it up as a new buyer, you're going to cause too much damage, uh, so to speak, for for the business. Um, so, you know, I was I was a bit sad, to be honest, to lose somewhere like Greece, for example, but that mm. was going to happen with Austria. Um, it's just been it's just been a region that I've fallen so much in love with, as, as a bit said before, because it was one of the first that I started to work with. But also, I think the thing that made it different uh, to England, for example, which was also fantastic to work with, was that actually the sales grew really, really well and pretty quickly. 
And it wasn't long before it became actually a fairly significant region for us. So I think the fact that I've been able to kind of see it grow up, as it were, um, it's like like raising a child, <laughs> you know, yeah. to kind of see it grow and see it develop. Uh, and it made me feel even kind of closer to it. So it really does feel like a different part of the wine society's portfolio now than it did when I first started to work with it. So I think that that, that makes it even harder to want to ever give it up for sure. Yeah, that's a good answer because it was a, a fairly good. tricky question to throw <laughs> at you too. But I, I've seen the way you've nurtured that uh, portfolio and, and grown it too. Um, like you, I'm a, a fan, as I mentioned, and a reasonably regular visitor, or, although that's not been quite as possible in the last 18 <laughs> months as it uh, was before that. And I decided uh, to feature Austria, kind of a love letter almost, uh, as my monthly column in uh, Club oh, in yeah. Logique this month. Really and good. I start. Really thank you. Oh, thank you. Bless you. Uh, <laughs> you can stay. Uh, and uh, I, I decided to kick off with the um, antifreeze scandal of 1985 uh, as a starting point, not least because um, there are many people who won't remember that. They won't even have been uh, yeah. around, possibly yourself included. <laughs> and it yeah. felt exactly. almost... Um, cruel to be starting with something that is so hackneyed in a way and happened so long ago but i think it is very relevant to the modern standards you have in austria now isn't it we have to always learn from history and that obviously applies to things far beyond the world of wine um but i think that the the wine scandal and, and it's not just me who thinks this I, i've heard it from wineries as well winemakers they say that it sort of hit a big reset button for austrian wine and actually in the long run it's been a very positive thing to have happened. Obviously, it was horrendous at the time because, as you know, it caused the Austrian Austrian wine industry to pretty much just shut down almost overnight, you know, and it was a long, long, long time before they have been able to be kind of taken seriously again, I guess, by the rest of the wine world. And that's definitely happening now. But what it did mean is that at the time, uh, you know, these, well, let's face it as well, the majority of producers weren't doing anything at all. It was just a small few producers who, who uh, caused the scandal. But I think almost unanimously, the Austrian winemakers realised if they wanted to be taken seriously again, they really had to focus entirely on quality. They had to make the best quality wines that they could. And actually, that means that what we have today is an Austrian wine industry, wine scene, which produces some of the best value and best quality wines in Europe. Absolutely. I, I couldn't agree more. For, for those, by the way, listening who are thinking, um, what's this antifreeze thing? Uh, well, mm. you could go and read my column, of course, but actually this yes. is uh, diethylene glycol, isn't it? I, I think the ingredient that I think the a few dodgy winemakers put into their relatively cheap bulk wine yeah. Uh, yeah. destined for Germany in order to, um, I think, to flesh it out and give it a kind of sweeter yeah. richness. It was to give it a bit more kind of viscosity or something like that. I mean, it sounds disgusting, frankly, but... Uh... But there you go. It seemed like a good idea at the time, obviously. <laughs> uh, yes, and look what happened. But as you say, the standards are so high, the, the highest in the world, I, I think now. And there's an openness and a, a transparency. And I think as well, um, there are some amazing winemakers there doing some really extraordinary things. There's an incredible humility to Austrian winemakers, isn't there? Mm. Yeah, I think that's absolutely right. I think, um, you know, what's, what's great about so many of these Austrian winemakers is that for so many years now, they've just been getting on with it, really. You know, they've just been focusing on what they do best and making sure that they do it to the best of their ability. And that's making bloody good wine. Um, and it's not been so much about flashy marketing or, or anything like that, because they've just been getting on with it behind the scenes. And now what's happening is, um, you know, there's so many of these winemakers who make world-class wines and they almost don't realise just how, how good they are. Or maybe that's, maybe that's unfair. I think maybe they do realise how good they are, but they just are very humble uh, with it as well, which is, it makes them fantastic to work with too. Yeah, well, let's do, zoom in on uh, one of its most famous grapes, uh, Gruner Veltliner. I mean, I say one of its most famous grapes. It is the most famous grape of Austria, really, yeah. isn't it? It is. It is. It's the most planted in the country. And you appeared in the first ever edition of The Drinking Hour, extolling its virtues as your desert island grape. So uh, for those who didn't hear you then, what makes you love it so? I'd forgotten about that, funnily enough. Um, yes, oh, no, I... I unforgettable. I, I, I know. <laughs> well, that's very kind of you, I think. Um, it, I just think it's a fascinating grape variety, really. I think one of the things that I love about it is its versatility. 
So, you know, Gruno, I guess a bit like Chardonnay, has an ability to make very good wines at all price points, really. So starting at the very entry level, it makes these really lovely, fresh, crisp, refreshing white wines, which are real crowd pleasers. But then at the top end, it is able to reflect the vineyard amazingly well. So you really get a sense of what it's grown on and where it's grown as well, um, which I think is one of the key things for any major grape variety. It has to be able to do that. But also what I love about it is it's just completely unique. You know, you don't see it in the same scale anywhere else in the world. You know, obviously there's there's examples popping up in New Zealand and various other places. But, uh, but I mean, nowhere does it to the same scale that Austria does it. So I think that's really special as well. It's nice to shout about and, and kind of highlight or spotlight the things that somewhere like Austria does uniquely and does very, very well. And it ages incredibly well as well, doesn't it? It does. It does. Yeah, it can age incredibly well. You're absolutely right. It's um, got this amazing acidity, which really kind of sets it up for a long, long you know, life of cellaring, potentially, if you've got the patience. And what I tend to find, I mean, certainly with the wines from somewhere like uh, Camptal, for example, um, Schloss Goldsberg, Michael Moosbrugger, I mean, his, his wines are a fantastic example of, of wines that can age. And he says, and I quite agree, that with his top single vineyard wines in particular, they're drinkable when they're really, really young and they're fresh and they're vibrant and crisp and, and delicious. And then a little bit like what happens with White Rhone, they kind of go through a bit of a sleepy period. So after a couple of years, they start to kind of go to sleep or cocoon, I guess, and then start to evolve into these amazing mature wines where you kind of go back to them after five, six, seven years or so. And, and they're absolutely amazing. They're completely transformed. So Gruner can go through a bit of a cocoon sort of period, but actually the long-term ageing potential is, uh, is amazing. A cocoon is a very nice way of putting it. Some people refer to a dumb phase uh, with the yeah, wine, but actually mean. a cocoon is, is much nicer, I think. It's uh, the idea that <laughs> yeah. this notion that it's uh, hibernated or, or gone to sleep is lovely. Um, exactly. I mentioned in my column this month that um, I think I prefer... Austrian Riesling in as much as you can generalise about these things and I appreciate it is a sweeping generalisation but I think I prefer Austrian Riesling uh, to some of its celebrated rivals along the Rhine in in Germany and that would be uh, considered um, heretical or at least rash by some. I was talking to a a leading German wine expert uh, when I was in Austria recently who who uh, actually lives in Germany, who, who sort of stepped backwards slightly when I said this. But um, <laughs> what, um, what would be your position and, and, uh, and how do you kind of explain the differences in those uh, countries' uh, Rieslings? Do you know, it's a really good question because obviously the German examples of Riesling are understandably much, much more famous, much better known. But I think both of them certainly have a place, both Austrian and German. I mean, Austrian Riesling tends to be the vast majority of the time bone dry and has this lovely, I mean, certainly from, from uh, you know, Kamptal, Kremstal, that sort of area um, has this lovely kind of tangerine peel kind of note on the nose, which is brilliantly unique and the wines are extremely refreshing. I mean, I've got to be honest, I also absolutely love good German Riesling and, and there are a few things I enjoy drinking more than, than delicious, you know, off dry, lower alcohol Riesling. I mean, it's one of the most refreshing drinks in the wine world. But I think both have got their place. So this is a very, this is a very sort of politician's kind of answer, I suppose. But I think both have their place because they're both so fantastically different. And I guess the one thing that I would say to people is don't forget about Austrian Riesling because it is absolutely superb. And we were talking about ageability with the Gruners, but in my experience, the Austrian Rieslings are even more ageable. And mm. I, I tasted a few a few weeks ago now, uh, uh, which were as old as 32 years old, I think, and still absolutely singing uh you know so really i i would say to anyone who hasn't tried austrian reasoning before then do definitely give it a go it's not just germany that does it extremely well oh yeah well i had a uh, the pleasure at the uh, launch of the the otw the um, Ersterlagen oh, yeah. uh, wines which are the the, the the kind of premier crew wines uh, last year at, at grafenegg uh, castle we tasted uh, a selection of 2010 vintage riesling oh, and wow. grunewaldliner and they were incredible and just still so amazingly fresh, which would be that uh, acidity that you were 
uh, referring to, presumably, uh, and obviously the fruit quality as well, I guess. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Again, it's that acidity. I mean, look, Riesling is a very age-worthy grape variety anyway. Um, and, and, you know, most places where it's grown very well produce very age-worthy examples. But I think that combined with this unique acidity that Austria seems to give its wines um, sets it up for particularly long aging potential. And and the crucial thing is as well, though, that it develops fantastically. It's not something which mm. can just keep. It is actually worth keeping because it does develop loads more flavor uh, and aroma kind of layers, if you like. Delicious. I want some now. Oh, <laughs> oh yeah, you're making me thirsty. We should yeah, do the really reds as well, because we're waxing lyrical about the whites and there are other varieties, obviously, beyond Riesling and Gruner Veltliner, I have a, a current crush on Neuberger, actually, which is probably very niche indeed. <laughs> niche, yeah. Uh, but, yeah, I know, I know. Uh, but uh, then on uh, reds, we, we, we have to mention reds, and I'm a great lover of Blaufrankisch, which you can tell us about shortly. But um, we should also talk about Zweigelt, because thanks to some of the things that you have brought in, I've reappraised uh, Zweigelt, which... I used to think, uh, I think it's a combination of, uh, of Blaufrankisch and uh, Saint Laurent, and I used to think it was never greater than the sum of its parts. But actually, Zweigelt, if it's not over-oaked, can be really lovely and juicy and fresh, can't it? Yeah, absolutely. And I think you've hit the nail on the head there with it not being over-oaked, because there's still um, uh, a lot of more old-school, let's say, wineries that believe that you know more oak equals more good <laughs> and, and unfortunately oh, no. that isn't the case um but actually there are there are plenty of producers now more so than ever who are looking to uh, you know really let the fruit do the talking and i think some of these austrian red grape varieties with again that classic austrian acidity have such amazingly kind of vivid and crunchy fruit that it's a shame to mask that with with too much oak so Things like Zweigelt, I think, have had a bit of a, a bad rap in the past. Um, and a lot of that might well be to do with the, the style of the, you know, that the winemaker has chosen to make the wines in. But I say, yeah, you know, let's get rid of too much oak on these sorts of wines and let's let the fruit do the talking because there's so much of it there. It's so vibrant and, and delicious. So I'm glad that you've been enjoying it. That's, that's good news. Yeah, vibrant is the word for good, young, slightly chilled juicy Zweigelt. Yeah. Um, I mentioned yeah, Blaufrankisch as well, um, which uh, uh, is, is if, it ha if Austria has a sort of fine red grape variety, then it's got to mm. be Blaufrankisch, surely, hasn't it? Yeah, do you know, in my experience, I'd say that is true. Um, and it's interesting, though, who you speak to, because some people kind of consider Zweigelt maybe to be that. Um, other people say Saint Laurent. Um, but in my experience, Blaufrankisch is the one that's also got the most potential to, to mature well with a bit of time in bottle. Um, sometimes the top wines, when they're young, can be kind of like this this kind of tight, closed fist of fruit and they need a bit of time to open up. But actually, again, there are more winemakers making really kind of um, approachable when young examples, which is great to see. But actually, some of the top stuff ages fantastically. I work with a, a producer called Birgit Braunstein and she makes these delicious Leiderberg Blaufrankisch wines. And she actually releases them with a bit of age on them already. But these wines keep fantastically, you know, and again, it's another grape variety, which is probably new to a lot of people, but which should certainly not be overlooked. Yeah, no, I got, I was, had the pleasure of tasting some of those uh, Leiterberg wines and they're, they're fantastic. And a, a word yeah. for Dorley Moore in uh, Carnuntum yeah. too, because her uh, Spitzerberg Blaufrankisch is just uh, divine absolutely fantastic yeah, you've brought in uh what we call an on primeur approach uh, to the Ooh, austrian yeah. wine which was brand new for the wine society they've obviously done on primeur for for hundreds of years probably but not with austrian <laughs> wine so just tell us briefly what on primeur is for those who don't know and then why you've done it yeah so essentially i guess the the very bare bones of on primeur is you're buying wine before it's finished. Um, and there's a number of benefits to doing that. Obviously, you want to be doing that with wines that you know are reliable, of course, because the, there's, there's an element of risk. You haven't got the opportunity necessarily to try it in its finished form before you hand over your cash. But it's a really, really good way of, A, getting access to wines, which otherwise might be sold out once they hit the market, You know, getting in there really, really early, which is the case with, with these wines, and B, 
it's a great way of, of actually getting wine when it's at its cheapest as well. So it's a great way of buying fine wines at, at very, very good value. And both of those things actually are what we've managed to achieve with this Sloskogelsberg on Pomer, which is super. Yeah, looking forward to trying them down the line when they're beyond their uh, cocoon phase. Um, we can't have a chat uh, uh, every month without us talking about um, some kind of headache uh, for you, I'm afraid. Um, and uh, the current one um, uh, for you and your colleagues right across the wine yeah. trade, not obviously just at the Wine Society, yeah. is the shipping crisis. Um, we're hearing quite oh, yeah. a lot about this. Um, we're hearing about it with carbon dioxide at the moment in part, which has a number of different uh, contributory factors, but one of them is uh, yeah. the shipping crisis. We're hearing about it. We're seeing empty shelves. Um, what's going on? Yeah, it's a bit of a nightmare at the moment, obviously across the wine world, but across the wider world as well. So essentially, I mean, um, it's taking a very, very long time to ship anything from anywhere to anywhere at the, at the moment. So when you're shipping wines from Australia, the other side of the world, for example, uh, it's a complete nightmare, but it's down to a number of factors. There's a container shortage, um, which is caused by, well, that's in itself caused by a number of factors. I mean, over the last 18 months or so, there's been an increase in, in, people buying goods as opposed to experiences and things. So where we once might have gone, oh, we've got this bit of disposable income. Let's go out and have a nice day out and do something, do something nice. We're actually going, well, let's go online and buy something nice instead, which means that there's a huge increase in people shipping stuff. But then thanks to all sorts of different lockdown measures in different countries, um, there's a lot of shipping containers that are just sitting at ports. So actually getting stuff into a container is a nightmare. There's also, well, when, when, when things come into the UK, there's also a shortage of drivers. So there's a lot of stuff that's sitting at port, which is no good. So, I mean, uh, one of my colleagues who ships our Spanish wines said that he uh, placed an order for, for our society's carver. Um, it arrived into the country in July, but is still waiting to receive it at the Wine Society. And, we're, and, and it's now, well, where are we now? September. So, um, you know, it's crazy, isn't it? You know, so it's actually not just getting stuff across the water. It's getting stuff through customs, which is which has become a complete nightmare as well. So it's causing a lot of headaches. And just to give you a bit of an idea of how, you know, I'm trying to deal with this working with Australia and New Zealand. I am currently working hard on a selection of Australian wines, which we're going to release in March next year. And I've got uh, another week and a half to get the selection done because otherwise there's a solid chance things might not arrive in time. So it's fun times. <laughs> and how, just for context, how does that compare with how you would ordinarily have worked with that same promotion of those Australian wines, uh, let's say two years ago? So, I mean, so a couple of years ago, we would we were factoring maybe eight weeks for shipping, let's say. Um, so we could generally be pretty confident that things would arrive a couple of months after we've ordered. So you know, six months, sorry, six months, six weeks on a boat, uh, maybe a week either end, that type of thing. I mean, obviously, there'd have to be a bit of flex in that. But now, I mean, if anything arrives in, in, in 12 weeks, it's practically a miracle at the moment. But as I said before, mm. just getting stuff through customs is another factor that's been been chucked into the mix. So we're really having to add on weeks and weeks and weeks of, of buffer to make sure that things arrive in time. So it's uh, it's very difficult, very difficult. Um, yeah. So one of the one of the fun factors of wine buying for you. Well, there we go. We uh, feel for you with that. And I think, uh, unfortunately, uh, we're not out of the woods yet uh, by any measure uh, uh, on that no. uh, particular issue. So good luck with getting wine to thank our you. sellers. Um, and uh, thank you so much for evangelizing with me about Austria. It's great to chat to you as always. Uh, talk to you next time, Freddie. Thank you. I look forward to it. Speak to you soon. The Drinking Hour on Food FM. You're listening to The Drinking Hour with David Kermode in association with the International Wine and Spirit Competition, using the best in the world to judge the best in the world. It's time for our second delectable trio of medal winners. And let's start with a gold medal winner, Pata Negra. Reserva 2016, uh, Vina Arnais from Ribera del Duero. If you're curious, uh, the name actually means black leg or hoof in Spanish. It's named after the famous Iberian pigs whose nails are black. Nothing to do with varnish in this case. Uh, the wine is actually made with uh, Tintafino, which is a Castilian clone of Tempranillo. 
Uh, giving their golden gong, the judges said, intriguing nose of lifted violet notes, blackberry bushes and wild mint, earthy chilli spice and creamy chocolate mousse gives a palate that is poised, energetic and full of life, richly textured and perfectly balanced for a long, resinous finish. Sounds delicious. Next, a classy bubbly, Bessira de Belfond. Blanc de Blanc Grand Cru Brut Non-Vintage Champagne was a silver medal winner with 91 points. Uh, founded in 1843 as Maison Bessera, uh, this was served at the Moulin Rouge in the 1960s. Uh, the judges said of this one, pronounced and generous palate of hazelnut, ripe quince and cream with uh, well-balanced acidity, the finish is flavoursome and powerful. And another Italian classic for you, Amarone. This is Palazzo Grimani 2018 Corte Giara Amarone della Valpolicella. It won a silver medal. It's a blend, uh, the traditional one, I think, of Corvina, Rondinella and Molinara. Uh, started in 89, uh, that's 1989. Uh, Corte Giara is a partnership between the Allegrini family and a select group of high quality wine producers. And the aim is to produce everyday wines that unite a respect for tradition with a modern eclectic approach. Uh, giving it 91 points, the judges said a concentrated nose of candied plums and red fruit compote with hints of vanilla and cinnamon, giving it complexity. Smooth mouthfeel, packed with intense fruits and integrated tannins. And that's where we leave it for this week's Drinking Hour. Thanks to Greg and to Freddie. I hope you enjoyed the conversations and the medal-winning recommendations too. And you can follow us at Food FM Radio on Instagram and Twitter. And I'm Mr Venusaurus on Instagram and Twitter. But for now, until next time, it's goodbye. The Drinking Hour on Food FM.